Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Lee Willows, CEO of the Young Gamers and Gamblers Education Trust and Gavin Stewart, regulatory consultant at Grant Thornton. Lee Willows is the founder of the Young Gamers and Gamblers Education Trust, a charity he founded based on his personal experiences with gambling. The UK registered charity is committed to informing, educating and safeguarding young people against problematic gambling and social gaming. Lee has spent some 25 years in the education and third sectors, progressing from a frontline teacher and youth worker for youngsters aged 16 plus to holding senior leadership positions with youth support initiatives that include the Kingswood Learning and Leisure Group and the Prince's Trust. And Lee, a very warm welcome to the show. Hi there, Judith. Good to be here. Gavin Stewart has worked in the field of financial services regulation for nearly 30 years for the Bank of England, the FSA and the FCA, where his tenures included a role at the FCA's Chief Risk Officer. During his time at the regulator, Gavin was a member of the Executive Diversity Committee and executive sponsor of Inside Out, its LGBT network. Beyond the world of risk and regulation, Gavin has represented Great Britain on an international rowing stage, most notably at the Seoul and Barcelona Olympics, and led the Lottery Awards strategy as a former board member of UK Sport. In 2016, Gavin joined the professional services team from Grant Thornton as a regulatory consultant. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thank you. As always, at the start of the show, we invite each guest to talk about what they're up to at the moment. So, Lee, let me come to you first. What are you focused on? To answer your specific question, I mean, I'm a former gambling addict um, and uh, with others, we uh, incorporated the Young Gamers and Gamblers Education Trust four years ago. And what's preoccupying our time at the moment is all around building digital resilience and financial uh, well-being amongst young people. Because actually there's more and more people gambling and gaming in the United Kingdom, but actually it's the, it's the activity we don't seem to talk about in schools, colleges or universities. We talk about sexual health, we talk about responsible drinking, we don't talk about gaming or gambling. And just think if you're a parent at home, uh, you know, your children may well be on their mobile phones or on their tablets playing games. Actually, what are they playing? How long are they spending on their devices? And how much money are they potentially spending? So what's preoccupying our time at the moment is getting our message out around digital resilience and financial well-being. Fascinating. And we'll certainly come back to much of that in this show yeah. as well. So thank you. And then Gavin, how about you? What, what are you focused on? Um, so I think at the moment I'm spending most of my time, increasing amount of my time on the application of technology to regulation. So reg tech for the shorthand, um, which I think is going to transform how financial services works over the next, let's call it a decade, but it'll be, it'll be sooner in many respects, I suspect. Um, and that has all sorts of quite complex and, and dynamic elements to it. So there's a whole question about the governance of how changes are made. Um, there's a whole question around how you save money out of it and what you do with that and the business change involved, um, the additional accuracy and flexibility it gives to the regulator and the potential to solve really important problems around uh, making the financial services industry um, better protected against money laundering, terrorist financing and so on in the way that it's exploited at the present. And, and just picking up on that, I mean, there's 
been an argument for you know having greater diversity at the table of yes. governance, risk, and and uh, regulation, or GRC, governance, risk, mm. and compliance. Um, so, what degree do you think the world has shifted, and there's a greater appreciation for that? So, I think. I think to a large extent, I think the, the argument in terms of what's important um, was won a while ago. Uh, I think putting that into practice is proving much harder for a whole variety of reasons. Um, I think that the hearts and minds of people in terms of um, diversity and inclusion have proved much harder to shift. Uh, to open up what this really means for you as an individual working in a firm with other people who have different um, different diversities and, and, and different identities has proved much harder. Uh, I think the action plans in terms of changing the status quo and moving that forward um, have been less effective than, um, than people hoped at the time, still hope. Uh, and I also think that the the complexity of identity and the debate around that has become more complex in the last decade. Mm-hmm. And, and as you look at that, are there particular areas that have impressed you in the industry where you think we should do more of that? Are there sticking points which you think require some focus? I mean, I'm sure there are lots of really good things. When I hear ideas and people talk at conferences and um, and elsewhere, I always think, oh, I r- wish I'd really thought of that. Um, what, I, what I haven't seen, partly because I'm not close enough to it, is how effective they really are, um, both immediately and over time, and how well they are um, accepted by the wider workforce. And I suppose the other thing is the ability to really track them effectively, um, to get hold of the right information, to interpret it in context and understand what it really means. And, and where innovation, uh, well, where there's a challenge, innovation can quite often solve that. And you mentioned about the world of, of reg tech as well. Are, are you seeing any interesting developments in the world of reg tech that you, you think are very hopeful for driving change? So I think I think technology opens up a whole range of opportunities um but what you see at the moment is quite often as the way of these things the the problems come up first you know from everything to do with you know who writes the algorithm uh and what's it based on and how diverse is that uh down to well actually when you start making changes within organizations how do you actually do that because it drives quite a lot of uncertainty and insecurity and that then brings delight lots of identity stuff potentially that people just roll with in the normal course of business. Um, On the other hand, I think there's a huge amount of scope for greater accuracy of information, understanding what you're dealing with, taking drudgery drudgery out of a lot of people's jobs to a great degree, um, allowing them to, you know, focus on the bits of their work that they really enjoy and do more of that. Um, and the, you know, the sort of the, the flexibility and so on that comes with that. But there's, there's a level of self-awareness in there as well that I suspect not every organization is well equipped to deal with when you really understand what's actually happening across all your departments in a way that you probably can't at the moment. Um, that will bring a whole set of responsibilities and um, obligations and pressures with it. 
And of course, there, there are many questions coming to light about biases in technology and biases yes. in data. And you mentioned about privacy and yeah. security. So as the, well. pro the problems really, always yeah. come up, and mm. we know, you know, without without going into it here, we know all the reasons why that why that is. And actually, it's it's fundamentally really important because otherwise, it will it will kill off the rest of it. And so it's we have thing, to sort it. And it's yeah. one thing we talk about a lot, actually. And and I think going forward, as we as we look at the sort of the next series and beyond, mm -hmm. is you know how does the role that diversity inclusion plays in uh, negating the risk of bias and therefore you yes. know the complexity within technology as well. So re really really fascinating time. It's great to have you on the show. Actually, yeah. thank you for for your thoughts yeah. on that. Um. So so let's just take a, a little bit of a step change away from that. Actually, but but of course there are some natural uh, segues between the question about identity, privacy, and of course technology. And um, Lee, let me let me just talk about um, in the construct of. The discussion around disability, we talk about mental health a great deal. And it's wonderful to have you on the show talking about gambling and gaming, as you were saying at the beginning about some of those trends that are happening as well. But but let's let's just take a little step back, actually, if you would, talk about your personal journey. If yeah, no, absolutely, Julia. And it's really interesting to listen to gambling as well, because I think tech has a real important part to play in protecting the vulnerable. And uh, I'll perhaps talk a little bit later about how the bank and the financial services uh, might want to sort of, sort of approach that, really. Um, but yeah, how, why gam? So Young Gamers and Gamblers Education Trust were actually known as YGAM. But how, how did, uh, how was the organisation set up? Well, it's quite an interesting story, um, Julia. So five years ago, I um, went to the casino for the first time in my entire life before. Never gambled. My parents didn't gamble. I've got no friends who gamble. We ended up, we had tickets to go and see a show at the ITV studios on the South Bank. We had the wrong tickets. We couldn't get in. So one of my friends says, it's raining, so let's go to the casino. So we walked across the bridge, over the Thames, we ended up in Leicester Square, inside a casino. And that day absolutely changed my life. Um, you can imagine there was four, of, there was five of us there, um, all a group of lads, all in our late 30s, having a few beers, um, some people on the tables, and I was on the slot machines in the casino. Um, I sort of put a couple of pounds into a machine and I won the jackpot. I won £4,000. And I'd only been in the casino, Julia, for like an hour and a half or something. I'd won the jackpot. So I cashed that in. Obviously, the drinks were on me, unfortunately, for the rest of the, uh, for the, rest of the afternoon. But that triggered a pattern of behaviour, which is really interesting because uh, I left the casino that night, went back home. And then the following day, actually, I thought, oh, I'll pop back to the casino again after work. So I went back to the same casino again uh, with some of the money that I won the day before. Uh, went to the back of the machines, Julia, gambled away again, didn't win anything. But actually, that started a curiosity because I went back the following day thinking, actually, I just might get a little bit of money here. So I went back in the following day and again, won a little bit, lost a little bit. But what happened then really, and for the space of two and a half years, I became absolutely um, addicted or dependent upon the machines and the casinos. Um, they are called B1 machines. They are regulated by the uh, Gambling Commission. Um, I didn't play on the Tebba games, didn't gamble online, or didn't go inside the betting shops, but there was something about the machines that sort of hooked me in effectively. And I'm a, I'm a sensible northerner, so I'm the son of a miner. And my dad said to him as a young age, he said, Lee, make sure you save your money, son, as a child. So I had spent a lifetime saving money, Julius. So I actually had quite a bit of money uh, that I'd saved up. Um, and my um, 
my appreciation of money, my understanding of money went totally out of the window when it came to gambling because I often overindulged. And what do I mean by that is that uh, that nest egg of savings uh, that went down. Um, and at this point, I was probably gambling five days a week or six days a week. Um, and because the casinos are open 24 hours a day, I would be in there in the mornings before I go to work. I'll then go and do my sort of chief exec bit in work and then go back home uh, in the evenings via the casino again. And I guess after probably about six months or so, I was probably spending 30 to 40 hours uh, a week in the casino. Uh, sometimes I go in Friday after work and I pop out Saturday afternoon. I mean, it became a real um, fixation in my life. And I developed a dependency upon those machines. Um, so all this money I had, I spent it. I spent it within six months. I needed to get hold of some more money and I couldn't stop gambling. I tried to stop, but I couldn't stop. The level of euphoria um, and listeners who, who know uh, a little bit about addictions, particularly behavioral addictions, it triggers dopamine in your in, in, in your brain and that, that high level, it, it's an incredible feeling and I wanted more and more and more. So I ran out of my own money. So then I turned to the banks. I had a clean credit file. So I applied to the major banks and I was able to get unsecured loans. I had a number of unsecured loans. So I was, take, I was making here very poor financial decisions because I had a range of financial, uh, a range of loans. Um, I lied to get some of those loans, obviously. I wouldn't be saying to the banks, I'm going to use it on gambling. So I lied to get the loan. Um, I had different bank accounts and different email addresses. Um, and then after about six months, uh, Julia, all the money ran out of from the loans and I couldn't get no more money, but I still needed to gamble. I just couldn't stop. So then I'm, and I'm quite a sensible, boring person, uh, especially when it comes to money. I've been really good with money. Um, I turned to payday loans and I had something like 46 payday loans. Would you believe it? All small amounts, all two to 300 pounds at a time. But because the urge was so strong to gamble, um, and I couldn't stop, obviously, payday loans provided that opportunity for me to continue to gamble. And it actually gets quite worse, really, because when I, obviously, like the loans, I hit a point when I could, one, no longer pay back the, the loans uh, to the payday um, providers. Um, but also I was being found out because I had multiple loans and my credit file with Experian was going down and down and down. Um, and I couldn't stop gambling. So what I did then is I then stole money to feed the addiction. This is completely out of character and it's something that I am, I think about every single day and I am thoroughly ashamed of, but I stole money from my previous employer to continue the addiction, to continue feeding my trips to the casinos. I stole £19,000, Julia, and I'd spent it quite quickly um, and then I remember I was going to sort of take some more money out of the organisation that I used to work for, but I didn't. I thought, well, actually, I can't stop gambling. Number two, I've now done a horrendous thing. I've committed a crime to feed my addiction. I didn't even steal a Mars bar, really, as, as a child at school. So if I can't stop, um, I need to do something about this. The only way out I could see was to take my own life. 
So in 2013, September 2013, I uh, had a little bit of money left over. And often in life, Julia, you know, we, we don't get to choose when or where we die. And I had a choice and I'm a stubborn northerner. And even to this day, I'm quite surprised I didn't go through with the, with the, uh, with the suicide. But I thought if I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to go somewhere beautiful and do it. Um, and somewhere far away in a false hope that nobody would find out. Because up until this point, the gambling, the secret life, all the struggles with money... Uh, was all a secret. Nobody else knew this. I kept this totally to myself. It was almost like I was living a double life. By day, I was a successful chief executive running a fantastic organization. But my goodness, I was really struggling inside with the addiction. Um, yeah, so on the day I was going to, um, for, my for the suicide, I was going to fly over to Bangkok to a beautiful little island called Koh Lipi, uh, off the coast there. I was going to kill myself. Um, on that morning, I was going to get on the plane. My mum, thank you, mother, uh, left me a message on my phone. She says, Lee, how are you? Give me a call back. Hope you're well. Um, she had no idea, Julia, that her son was about to board a plane to commit suicide. Um, so that phone call stopped that. Um, I then went and saw the chairman of the organisation that I used to work for. I told him about the addiction and also within the same breath, I also told him that I stole the money. Um, and then I went into treatment. I told my parents. And it took six months of treatment to get gambling out of my mind. The, the pull of gambling was so strong. Um, and I suppose relevant to today's program, I had to go bankrupt. Again, it's absolutely terrible that somebody who's been so careful with money all of his life had to go bankrupt. Um, I went to court for the money that I stole, which is a breach of trust, and I wasn't expecting this at all, but the judge gave me a suspended sentence for uh, for two years, uh, which is now spent. So it's been quite an interesting journey, and it's been a journey where I have totally ruined uh, my financial record, and now it's a journey of trying to rebuild that financial record, and it's a journey of trying to... Um, with my experience in teaching and youth work is with the YGAM team is to talk about responsible gaming and gambling across the United Kingdom. Well, so first of all, can I just say thank you for sharing an incredible story. And it's, it's been incredibly uh, generous of you to do that. And uh, how inspiring now that you're, you're helping others. So, so how, did, how did the initiative begin? I mean, how did you, I mean, that first step in and of itself must have been a scary, positive one. Yeah, no, thanks. It's quite interesting because everybody says, oh, it's really inspiring me. But actually, I'm really disappointed in myself uh, for what I've done. I've brought a lot of shame upon a, a lot of people. Um, and I've had to restart again and a whole range of things, really. Um, so what we do now, moving forward, is um, it's quite interesting. So in 2014, we, um, I uh, sort of with others, we looked at, do we talk to young people about financial education? particularly when it comes to gaming or gambling? And the answer to that question was no. Um, do we talk to you and Peter about some of the potential risks associated with that activity and some of the personal consequences? The answer to that question was no. So again, with us, we set the charity up. Um, and as you said earlier, our uh, social purpose is to inform, educate and safeguard uh, young people against problem gambling gaming. 
and effectively we train teachers to deliver our program and a strong element of that program is all around financial education um, and then secondly we train and employ students in partner universities to deliver the program to their peer group and as you can imagine students 18 first time away from home um, you know some of them do see an opportunity to gamble is to make money and we believe in YGAM that you know a lot of people gamble responsibly and within their means but there will be some people like me who cannot control their gambling like some people cannot control their uh, their drinking so this type of um, uh, education this type of financial awareness we think is is, is really important. And I suppose there are sort of three things that come out of that for me. One of them is around vulnerability. And we know there's an FCA, something that the FCA is really sort of keenly looking at in terms of uh, vulnerability and financial capability uh, sort of structure there. The second is around uh, technology and how technology is perhaps, any, any, I, don't, I don't want to say it is an enabler, but also has a role in terms of perhaps assisting with some of the patterns and, regu and regulating some of those patterns. And then the third is also uh, the, the financial services industry and organizational response. Um, why, why don't we unpick sort of each of those? Bring in there, um, Gavin, around the question about vulner vulnerability and the, the regulatory sort of dynamic around that. Yes. So, I mean, th this is quite a long history. So when the Financial Services Authority was set up in 1998, um, raising, promoting public awareness was one of its objectives. And there was a lot of financial capability work came off the back of that over the next 10 or 12 years. Um, in particular, there was a quite a landmark financial capability survey in 2006. It's been widely used internationally in the FSA is, and, the, and then the, now the FCA has sort of developed that. So it was a financial lives document um, that came out last year, I think. Um, so it's always been a focus. The problem, of course, is that actually, on the one hand, financial products have become more complex and arguably more opaque over the years, despite lots of explanation and disclosure. Um, and also, to be honest, austerity hasn't helped. So there's less income, um, household debt built up before 2007, and it's been building up again in the decades since after having um, dropped um, during the recession itself. Um, so, so there's lots of pressures in that world um, and we're all vulnerable at some stage of our lives financially for whatever reason, whether it's a kind of major life event or illness or, um, or, or just we don't have much income coming in through the door. Uh, and it's very, very hard to unpick that. And the other thing that's probably worth throwing in is that I think the research backs this up, but I don't have any of it to hand. But I think people find um, find engaging with the complexity of financial services, frankly, less interesting than a lot of other things in their lives, even if they can understand it. Uh, so there is a, a really, so the one of the other things the FCA is doing at the moment is consulting on a duty of care to see whether it would be worthwhile to raise the um raise the benchmark of what's expected of financial services firms when dealing with their when dealing with their customers which is a kind of second area that I was yeah. really keen to look into the the organizational interaction and yeah. uh, and Lee let me just ask you here in terms of are there things that the financial services industry should or could be doing yeah it's really interesting Julius so I, I'm, I'm obviously learning uh, 
quite a bit on on the journey to uh, establish the the charity. Um, So we we, we must understand that if you are a gambling addict, you're addicted. It's no different being addicted to a substance as what it is being addicted to behaviour. And gambling is obviously a behavioural addiction. And there are there's some really good work, actually, and Gavin will be familiar with this, coming out of the uh, financial sector. So, for example, uh, as a customer uh, of a bank, if I want to take the step to what's called self-exclude myself, so I cannot gamble, um, there's a gambling transaction code on one's debit card. Um, there are some banks that are offering customers to sort of make that code live. So effectively, then I cannot go and gamble online. So that's a really good example of where the financial sector is helping. Um, and that's something really practical as well. Because so I think once you activate that self-exclusion, once you speak to your bank, that block can be put upon your account. So then you've got no access to money. And that's really important because I think as a, if you're addicted to a behavior, particularly to gambling, you need three things. You need time, opportunity, money. Um, you'll always make time to gamble. There will always be an opportunity. Just think of the amount of uh, opportunities there are to gamble. Um, Access to money is probably the most important um, um, thing uh, that that can restrict your gambling that can then help you to become uh, abstinent. abstinent. Mm -hmm. So effectively, I think blocking the transaction codes for gambling is is absolutely brilliant. I think the financial sector... um, ought to consider adopting that across the whole um, of, of the sector, really, for all banks, for certain customers. Yeah, so, I, again, I think it's a, it's a fascinating area. So a couple of years ago now, I think the FCA ran a tech sprint on, around mental health, which came up with a whole range of, of potential ideas and solutions yeah. along the, some of the lines you've been talking. I think technology at the moment for a lot of firms is a um is an inhibitor i think at some point that will change and then i think there will be a a real debate around exactly what the role of the financial services industry is and should be how much of it how much of a duty of care should it have how much should it be inhibiting people's um uh unhealthy behavior if you like, so it, it, so there'll be lots of opportunities that come along, but there'll be, a, there'll be some quite big debates about privacy and independence and freedom of action and so on that yeah. come with it. Yeah, and, and and on one side it's an inhibitor, but of course on the other side it's a great enabler in terms of thinking about the social gaming, the social gambling, yeah. and the platforms that are coming out as well. And love to hear your your thoughts around. Um, you know how technology in the enabling side is—is uh, is, is it out of control or does it require some some some? Could I just add one it, thing please? just yeah. before you come in? Because I think mm-hmm. I think the other thing that that will be really important is the extent to which we trust financial services firms with private information. So at the moment they have all our financials, all our financial information, let's say, but actually once you start trusting them with really quite sensitive areas of other sensitive areas of your life, then that opens up a whole different world. Which is the why do you need the money? Yeah. And what, what, and what are you going to do yes. with it? Yes, and, and why should, you know, please block me on this, and what are they going to, are they going to do a read across? What does it mean? What mm. are they going to read into mm. it? How will they yeah. interpret it? Yeah, interesting. Actually, if you think now that the mobile phone has given rise to any child of any age, to be in their bedroom at night uh, doing gaming or gambling. Now, obviously, I am from the uh, Commodore 
64 the Atari days. So I used to, <laughs> you know, for me. <laughs> absolutely. I, I used to play those games and they were great. And what's what's interesting nowadays is those type of games still exist. But the large gaming companies, and obviously gambling is regulated in the United Kingdom by the Gambling Commission, who do a very, very good job, whereas social gaming isn't. And the difference there with social gaming, you're not necessarily waging money to win money. But what's quite interesting is those games that I used to play as a child are still available now, but actually you now have to, there's an option there for a child to purchase what's called an in-app purchase. So if you want to complete the game in a quicker amount of time, you might, you know, pay a, um, a mobile phone provider three, four, five, six pounds, which should give you three extra lives to progress, or you may get what's called a skin for your weapon to progress in a in a sort of a shoot 'em up type game. Or there's even things now called loot boxes, so which will enable you to to make a purchase of an unknown object that may or may not advance you in the game. So the games have come on huge and huge huge bounds, really good. But I think what the difference now is, is there's an opportunity to put mix money into that, which there wasn't there before. Well, I think that that's a, a good moment to uh, just take a pause there. And we'll turn to Robert and Cynthia for some research to support today's discussion. A 2018 study from Juniper Research found that spending on RegTech platforms will exceed $115 billion by 2023, which is up from an estimated $18 billion in 2018. The research found that increased regulatory pressures demonstrated by GDPR implementation is driving businesses towards RegTech to meet greater compliance challenges. The research found that increased regulatory pressures demonstrated by GDPR implementation is driving businesses towards RegTech to meet greater compliance challenges. Any heavily regulated business not prioritising RegTech adoption would risk damaging fines from failing to keep up with regulatory changes. The report also highlighted that the sharp increase in RegTech spending, an average of 45% per annum between 2018 and 2023, was far higher than that of compliance spend as a whole, reflecting the rapid migration of spend to RegTech from traditional methods. In 2018, Accenture surveyed 2,000 adults in the UK in order to understand how people felt about the personal information that is collected about them online and which types of organisations they trusted with their data. People were least trusting of marketing companies by 75%, social media networks by 71%, dating sites by 70%, with 54% saying they saw no benefit to letting companies holding their data. Respondents were most trusting of their personal data with banks, insurance companies and the health services. So thank you to Cynthia and Robert and links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. Don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S. Diversitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Brightstalk and all good podcast channels. And we'd love a rating because it all helps to promote the show. And as we kind of head into the last section of the show today, this fascinating uh, topic Topic. Uh, one thing I keep thinking about is we're arguably heading into more challenging financial times. And I wonder what advice you'd give our listeners, both as individuals and as organisations. Lee, let me come to you first. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think from a gambling perspective, I think there's probably three things really. Number one is 
set a budget. It sounds really, really daft, but the amount of uh, problem gamblers I've met o- over the years who don't set a budget, so set that budget first of all. Uh, I think number two of three, that if you are finding you're spending too much time or too much money uh, gambling, then speak to somebody. Uh, there's a great organisation uh, called GamblerWare. Uh, the website is begamblerware.org.uk. Lots of information, advice and guidance on there as well if you think you're spending, as I said, too much time or money. Um, and remember that gambling should be a, a pastime social activity, really. So see it as that. Gavin, let me bring you in here. Sort of final thoughts for the organisation should be thinking about in their risk of their regulation. Um, so... So I think there's a couple of things. So one is that in, a, in an organizational sense, I think there's an awful lot that is coming to rest with middle management. So there's a lot of top-down commitment, but there's also a lot of bottom-up um, uh, identity, um, things to be recognized, um, problems that have been under the surface that all of a sudden are you feel free to talk about and that layer in the middle is having to deal with both sides of that and I think typically they get quite a quite a, a hard rap um, and not maybe as much support um, as as they deserve and I think the other thing is is really to have a little bit more patience with complexity I think there's a lot of emphasis on looking for a killer fact looking for a sign bite, looking for a solution before we necessarily understand the full scale of the of what we're dealing with. Um, and it doesn't stop you from moving quickly, but actually trying to understand and unpick what identity is, um, what vulnerability is, and so on, is not something you're going to do in five minutes. So I think just having a little bit more patience with problems that we're only really beginning to see and understand in their fullness now, I think would would stand everyone in, in good stead. I suspect this won't be the last time that we'll talk about this very topic because, as you say, uh, having some patience around the complexity is important. It has been a really fascinating discussion. I'd just like to take a moment to thank you both, Gavin and Salih. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roet Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>